Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. This week we're on episode 32. We're leaving Scotland to go and speak to an expert from Iceland, but more of that anon, as they say. Uh, Claire and I are going to talk about a couple of things that have come up this week in our topical news round. I'm not going to let that go. I really like that as a section. (laughs) (laughs) So in in our topical news round, round up, round up of the news that's happened topically, Claire, we have been contacted by a listener, haven't we? We have. We've been contacted and we're very grateful to him, um, to Matthew Bridson. He is a, a listener from the northwest of England and he is currently, in fact, doing a master's on the Pendle Witch Trials. And he actually said that our podcast or our campaign was the inspiration for his topic. So we were really, oh. we were really delighted, delighted by that. But he got in contact with us to mention something which was really very important and we're really, really glad that he did. He brought to our attention that whilst we spoke about Tichuba and mentioned Tichuba in the body of the podcast, when we were reading out the names of those people who were convicted and executed and also some of the people who were accused, her name didn't appear and was concerned, obviously, that that name wasn't mentioned as one of the people on the list, and and rightly so. Yeah. I went back and had a look. Now, I hold my hand up here because it was me that read out the list of the names in the sort of the commemorative part last week. And I also hold my hand up for being not in any way, I have to always say this, an expert on history of witch trials. I think, I think both our hands are well held up yeah. on all these points, Zoe. So because I'm not an academic scholar, for that area anyway, I reserve my, maybe I am a scholar in other areas, I'm just not telling you. But for in this area, I'm not an academic scholar. I looked up Wikipedia, okay? Now, obviously, I should always mention the caveat that it's Wikipedia, and that is, that is it's a marvellous resource, but obviously it's, it's laid out in a different way for different topics. And what I actually looked at, if you go and have a look at the page that's dealing with the Salem Witch Trials, there's an enormous amount of names on that page. And there's a big table at the end of it that gives all the different areas. And what I read out, I focused particularly on those who had been executed or that had been born or died in prison. And then I read out a bit about people that had escaped. What I didn't read out and where Tituba's name would appear is in the confessed and or accused others section of the table on Wikipedia. Because along with, it looks like about 20 other people, Tichuba falls under that heading. Because like many people that were accused of witchcraft, she ended up confessing and she accused a couple of other people as well. 
And we know now, obviously, that that didn't mean that there was any guilt necessarily. It was that people were forced into it and that people were, you know, sleep deprived and or tortured physically and, you know, in other ways. And I imagine Tichuba's situation with her being an enslaved woman would have been particularly precarious and would have been, you know, should have had even less rights. I mean, doesn't even, it's just too awful. So I didn't read out the confessed and or accused other section and I didn't read out the accused but survived section mostly because so many people were accused. I mean, there's over 100 between those two sections. There's over 100 people that were accused but survived or that were confessed and or accused others. So I just didn't read out all those names. But Tituba is a, a very, very interesting person. I think for several reasons. For me, as a writer and reader, Tituba is really interesting because her otherness, the fact that she was not white and the fact that she was an enslaved person, meant that she has been of particular interest to people that have then fictionalised the story. So in my mind, I've got quite a strong picture of her, the fictional version of her, because of the crucible and because of, of other sort of fictional depictions, which does her obviously a disservice. And I think what's interesting about this is that one of our key aims and the reason that we do the commemorative portion of the podcast is to say this was this person. It wasn't sundry witches. It wasn't just a woman. This was, you know, and then the person's name. And Claire and I, we obviously both feel really important. That That's very important, which is why we read out people's names each week. So I would just like to mention Tituba here. We don't even know if that was her real name. We don't know where she actually came from. There's various different sort of theories about who she was, where she came from. We don't even know if she was African or if she was an Indigenous American. We don't really know anything very much about her. And it's become obscured, obviously, over the years. But I think it is absolutely worth mentioning. And one of the things, Claire, you looked up sort of the legal angle about this, about what happened to Tichuba, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I looked up and from what we can find, and I should say I agree with you on the the various stories behind Tichuba, there are as many websites as there are stories offering different ideas about where she came from, etc. And there's no clarity on it as far as I can see, which is a great shame. Tituba, as we know, confessed. She had confessions. There are parts of her confession that were available. She named at least two other women. It is thought that she was beaten into confessing. That appears to be a constant theme through the various websites that we've seen. So rather than torture by sleep deprivation or some of the methods that we had, it appeared that beating would have been the preferred method. And again, I don't know if that's actually known or whether or not that's just understood as a generality that that would have happened. What we do know, getting onto some more secure footing on the legal front, on May the 9th, 1692, she was put to a grand jury. Now, I think a grand jury is absolutely a fascinating thing. It's being judged by your peers to ascertain whether or not there's enough information for you to go to trial. It's well, that's what that means in TV programmes when they say, right, is there enough to put them in front of the grand jury? Yeah. So that, that's sort of like a gateway before like a proper... Yeah, if, if the grand jury say, yes, you can go on to trial, put very, very generally... Um, and so is that, sorry to sort of sidetrack slightly here, uh, who's on the grand jury then? Is it lawyers? Is it? No, no, it's, or it certainly was then. I don't know whether lawyers can be on it now, but it was a jury of your peers. 
So just just as we are called for jury service, well, see as we I can't be called for jury service, but as yeah. one is called for jury service, mere mortals might <laughs> such as myself might be called. And then and is there a judge then in charge of that who makes the final decision? No, no, the judge is in charge of the proceedings, but the decision on whether to put someone forward for trial is taken by the grand jury themselves. I think the term grand jury mm. is is something where you can also have a petite jury. I think I might be making that up. I can definitely see that American jurisprudence is not one that I've done any research on, but there's something in the back of Fair my enough. mind that makes me think that there is a phrase called petite jury as well as grand. Oh, yes, okay. So once again, using the Google, I have <laughs> looked it up as we've been speaking and there's a court, I'm looking at us.courts.gov. What's the difference between a petite jury and a grand jury? So I suppose we would call it like petite and grand, perhaps that's the, right. the way it was. A petite jury is a trial for civil and criminal cases. The petite jury listens to the evidence presented by both parties during a trial and returns a verdict. A grand jury does not determine guilt or innocence, but whether there is probable cause to believe that a crime was committed. So it appears rather strangely, you think it's the other way around, a grand jury determines whether or not there's probable cause to believe a crime was committed. And a petite jury is a trial in a civil or criminal case. So mm. a petite jury is what we think of as an ordinary jury. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I would have yeah. thought that's strange because we think the grand jury would be the jury that would decide the evidence in the case and the petite jury would be mm -hmm. other Anyway. I, I digress. So on 9th May 1692, a grand jury declined to indict. So it found on Tichiba's behalf that there was not probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed. Apparently, they wrote on the legal documentation that they were given the phrase ignoramus. Now, we use the word ignoramus. We use I, I, I don't think I've ever used it, but I understand it can be used to mean stupid you know, a stupid person. Yes, my children, both to their face and behind their backs. Yeah. <laughs> Ignoramuses. Um, I believe I was called that repeatedly by my mother, myself. <laughs> well, you're passing down a family tradition and that's lovely. Rudeness. Yeah, <laughs> past remarkability. But I think in this particular case, writing Ignoramus on the paperwork means that she was ignorant of the charge, as in she wasn't a witch. So, so ah, right, okay. So not not so much maybe um, she wasn't ignorant, but she wasn't competent. No, it was no, no, the, no. right. Okay, uh, ignoramus. It means she was ignorant of the charge, as in it wasn't known to her, as in there wasn't sufficient evidence. So it's really really important because it shows even at that time that 1692 that a jury of her peers decided that despite her confession evidence. Mm -hmm. There wasn't probable cause to indict her for being a witch. That's interesting because she eventually got out of jail. So her, and I hate to use this word, her owner, which was Samuel Paris, refused to pay her jail fees. And eventually in April of 1693, she was sold on to an unknown person for the price of her jail fees, apparently. It's just horrifying. Yeah, I mean, she remained an enslaved person, obviously, while she was in custody, and she remained an enslaved person when she was out of custody. What we also discussed with Matthew in emails was that he had done some research to find out whether or not she had 
been pardoned. And he said that he couldn't find anywhere whether or not she had been pardoned. And that is correct. And the reason for that is that she was never convicted. So as right. we've, we've discussed before in relation to our campaign, we want a pardon for those that were convicted, an apology for all those that were accused. So in the case of Tichuba, she wouldn't fit under a pardon because although she was kept in custody, although she was accused, she was never convicted. Therefore, that's why you cannot see her being pardoned anywhere. I also understand from the reading that we've done, and, and thank you to Matthew again for providing some of that reading to us, that when there were reparations to be made, nobody got any reparations because she didn't have family or perhaps family couldn't be traced. So whilst other people received reparations for family members who had suffered or, for example, who had had to pay their way out of custody, as mm -hmm. was the way, there doesn't appear to have been any reparations made to either Tichuba herself or the descendants of Tichuba. And also probably Tichuba didn't have any lands or anything that she might have lost. Yes. You know? Yeah, absolutely. As an enslaved person, I do not think that, that that would have been the case. So we dedicate this particular week's podcast to remembering Tichuba rather than name other names. We thought it would be a nice thing to do to just remember her on this day. And the, no doubt, mm -hmm. as you see, there's possibly almost 100 other people who were accused, who spent time in custody and who were released at a later stage, but yeah. had suffered greatly during that period of time that they would have been accused in custody. It's useful, I think, to mention that and then to think about the idea of remembering and of memorials, because that's something you and I have been talking about in the last wee while again, is about how we would foresee a memorial. Now, you and I were chatting earlier and you were saying that, of course, we've said repeatedly that it's not something that we would want to be sort of the bosses of. You know, we we have no interest in drawing out a sculpture and then making it ourselves. Or I mean, like we that. of course do, but we think it would be a very, very unwise idea to let us in charge yeah. Well, I don't know. I think we could do <laughs> quite a nice job, actually. But, um, but I think it's the sort of thing that really, if we're looking for a state monument, it wouldn't be up to us. Like That would be up to how the state kind of foresaw that, I suppose. But one thing that we've talked about is rather than a statue, a different idea, haven't we, Claire? Yes, well, just the more we've been doing the podcast, the more we've been speaking to people from other countries, the more I'm thinking that the best way to memorialise, to have a state-sponsored place for people to go and remember these people is a museum yeah. of accused people, people that were accused of witchcraft. So I don't like saying the phrase, I suppose, Museum of Witchcraft, because that would be what it would be shortened to. But it's really a memorial to all those people that were accused of witchcraft. And I think... It'd be more a museum of, of the witch trials. Yes, rather than witchcraft. exactly. Yeah, because what, what I wouldn't be particularly interested in would be it being something that's different. I mean, for me, my motivation with our campaign is very much about education and recognizing that people were accused of something and it was wrong and you know looking at that I'm much less interested completely respectful of it but much less interested in the notion of sort of uh, modern day being a witch I think that's cool if you're a witch that's totally cool it's up to you and I would defend your right to you know have religion or not religion or spirituality or not have it I don't it's really it's none of my business 
But what I would want to make sure was that the museum was really about people being able to kind of move through and understand this was the time that it was in. This is why it happened. These are these different sort of areas. And then thinking about the modern day ramifications of that and the modern day accusations of witchcraft and really looking at the way that humans need to be better humans to other humans. That exact way has been done really sensitively in Salem. Uh-huh. They have gone about it that way. It's not about, you know, pointy hats and, yeah. and those sorts of aspects of it. You know, we'd really have to be careful of that as society because, like, look at that recent issue that we've talked about a couple of episodes ago about one of our national bodies, you know, sort of almost getting a kind of a silly, purient little thrill from the idea of witches and about the man that was attached to the witch trials in Scotland and using that as a kind of a marketing ploy. It's just too, it's lazy and I just, I'm uncomfortable with it. So I would want to make sure that a museum was really thoughtful and really backed up by research. Absolutely. I just, it's something to think about. I mean, we've spoken to Salem. Mm -hmm. We are just about to speak to a person who is a curator of a museum in a small country called mm-hmm. Iceland, where there are far... I love the way you said that. A small country. And you'll have never heard of this country yeah, before. It's a small country. And it's called Iceland. It's um, not a supermarket. It's an actual place that you can go to when you can travel again. I was thinking, should country. I not spoil? Should I not spoil the surprise? Of I love that we do this. We do this every week that we do the chatty bit, and we we both try not to mention the person's name, as right. if it's like the bit in Stars in Your Eyes, where then they go, "Tonight, Matthew, I will be." The Witchcraft Museum in Iceland. I love I love that. It's just just the sort of the level of surprise that we're going to there. <laughs> but what I was thinking was that Iceland is such a small country. And just because it's such a small country, it still manages to have a museum that's dedicated. Mm-hmm. In its case, I think it is dedicated to witchcraft. So I think it's broader than the witch trials. Yeah. But it's still there as a resource where people can learn about the witch trials and learn about what happened. Again, using as best we can, as the best our facilities, Google. The population of Iceland is 356,000 approximately. Are you serious? Yes. That's how many people live in Iceland. Am am I serious? I might not be serious, but Google certainly is. Yeah, capital Reykjavik, population 356991. Just in Reykjavik. And that was in 2019. No, that's the population of Iceland. Shush now. I'm shocked by that. How many people live in Scotland? I think about 6 million. Hang no on. way. I'm God, they've got a disproportionate amount of um, murders in Iceland, then, judging by the, the level of crime fiction that comes out there. <laughs> I think that's because of the, the Scandinoir. Denmark's the same. Yeah. Denmark per capita, there's a really low number of serious crimes. But it's really, yeah. really bizarre that it's an absolute hub for criminality. There's yeah. somebody out there, there's another master's thesis in that, I'm sure. Why? Yeah, I mean, Scotland obviously isn't a very big country. I mean, it's obviously not as small as Iceland, but I mean, like looking at our extremely popular Scottish, like, what's it called, Tartan Noir, you know, that's huge. It's in no way representative, I don't think, of the amount of murders that actually occur in Scotland. But I'm really shocked at how small Iceland is. Yeah, well, you're making me doubt myself, and I'm going to Google it again. Well, there's a thought for today. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. 
Every day is a school day with you. <laughs> Every day is a school day with Google, I think. We'll find. It's not me that knows it at all. Um, I hope that's right. But yeah, if not, what, what will happen is if we keep getting things wrong, our news roundup's going to become increasingly longer as we explain all the things we got wrong in the last podcast. That's okay. I'm happy to put my hand up when I make a mistake. That's all right. I think that's I think that's a very important thing that I have learned as a teacher and as a parent is when you get something wrong, there's no shame in saying you got something wrong and saying, yeah, you know, we're here to learn. That's our human aspect, I think. Do you know, I absolutely totally agree. In our job, particularly when people are young in it, there's a pressure to be all-knowing. It's entirely unrealistic. And I think it's really, really important that people realise that you just know as much as you know. And if you don't know something, then you can learn it. You know? Yeah, I think so. I think that's that, how cool. How cool is that? The fact that you can just keep learning stuff. I'd hate yeah. it to be the sort of person that just kind of went, yeah, I know it all. I mean, I do I do act like I know it all, but I know that I don't actually know it all. <laughs> so it's good to learn something new. I'm really glad to learn that about Iceland today. Oh, look at that. Seamless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now we head to Iceland. We are delighted to introduce Anna Björk, who is the curator of the Witchcraft and Sorcery Museum in Iceland. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Not at all. We are, we are delighted. We found out about you. I found out about you because we saw a post on Facebook where I think you had said that you had given a talk on various witchcraft matters, including the setting of fires, and then the next day you had come to work. And your car had gone on fire. Yes. Yeah, it's a true story. Yes. <laughs> and now during, during COVID, we are not so busy. So I've been using my time for other things. And I've been giving some talks uh, online, live talks on, the, on our Facebook and Instagram page. And uh, yes, and I had this one talk about punishment for witchcraft in Iceland, and then mainly talking about burnings. And then when I arrived to work the day after, uh, my car, it's, it comes steams from my car and then suddenly I see there's a fire in it and it just burns there in a few minutes. <laughs> That's frightening. That's really and frightening. The, yeah, the, and the, the people, the townspeople, of course, all came with the camera, taking pictures and then we're making jokes. Oh, they're trying to burn the witch. And I was like, yes, I just escaped. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm very glad that you're, you're well and you're, uh, you're here to speak to us today. Can you tell us about the witchcraft in Iceland? What, what is the history? What's your story of witchcraft in Iceland? Well, the witch craze was here in the 17th century. It's a bit later than Europe. And it, it is actually a short period. It's a, when the burnings were, it was just a 30 years. The burning. So it's a, from the middle of the 17th century until the end. Yes. The witchcraft cases actually are about uh, 170 cases and, and the burnings were 21 burnings. But, you know, the witchcraft in Iceland, we have been like, it is like, I would call it more like a sorcery, something that superstitions and something people are used when they were facing their hard life here. It's a, it was a very difficult life with uh, harsh conditions where the weather really control your outcome, maybe your animals would die and 
You want it to be safe when you go on the sea on a small boat to fish. I think I, we could call it kind of also superstition. You know, you want to have this simple, you want to recite certain words to make you safe. Or, you know, we also have stories of kind of bad magic too. So I would say like witchcraft magic, it's uh, white and black. You know, it's not, you know, the black magic is um, if you want to cause harm, you want to kill someone, wake up the dead. We have many like folklore stories that uh, they're waking up the dead and sending them to their enemies to cause harm or something. And then the, the dead or the ghost, we call it the ghost, he will maybe follow that family for many generations or so. We have these stories. And uh, then we also, the good magic is like to heal, to protect you. Just, you know, so the sheep will have more lambs and, uh, you know. For yes. positive, positive reasons as well as negative reasons. Yeah, yeah. And in the witchcraft cases in Iceland, if you uh, admitted that you own some kind of runes or magical staves or that you have done something like that or recited certain words that seemed a bit more like witchcraft, then it was enough proof that you were guilty, even though it, what they were doing was not doing anything bad. You know, I think that's like Scotland. Scotland didn't differentiate between what you might see were supposed to have done good things or bad things. In Scotland, they just said, it's witchcraft. So yeah, exactly. If people were alleged to have done good things or bad things, they just covered the whole thing with witchcraft. Yeah, and I think the reason for that is because when they believed that uh, if you were able to do some witchcraft, you kind of sold your soul to the demon, that like they will be a demon or the devil was kind of part of you, you know? And that's the reason for the burnings that burned people because that was a way to free the people from this demon to get rid of the magic, the sorcery that was in them, you know? So that's why they had to burn it. They had to burn the person completely. There's some folklore stories that was still like the heart of someone who's a, you know, powerful sorcerer and the heart was still alive and there was like some snake coming out of it, you know? So the demon was still there. So they had to kind of burn it completely. And we imagine the witch burnings that the people like kind of like in Joan Arc, like you're on a pile of wood, you're, you know, yeah. stuck, you know, there and they burn it. But it's more likely that people were kind of just laying down, they tie their hands and feet and just lying there on the pile of wood to make sure that they burned. So they weren't, they weren't killed first. They were killed by the burning. Yes, yes. So that's exactly. different in Scotland because in Scotland, largely that they were hanged or they were strangled first and then their bodies were burned. And the thinking yeah. in Scotland was that they had to destroy the body so that the devil couldn't, couldn't bring the body back from the dead and go and do terrible things. So it sounds quite different in Iceland. It sounds like an extremely horrible method of death. And yeah. also, but they were doing it for the person's soul to free the, free the soul. So with a sort of a Christian interpretation, I presume that they're going to let the person like free from this devil trap that they were in. Yeah, exactly. And there are also cases that when the ropes burned before the people lost consciousness, yes. Yeah. So they ran out of the fire, you know, but then they just brought them back. You know, that, you oh, know, God, <laughs> that's so awful. Uh, and there was uh, one case of man who was accused and was yeah sentenced to burn. And he never admitted to knowing any any kind of witchcraft and they had a lot of problem burning him and also collecting the wood the horse that was 
bringing the wood, he broke his leg and it's raining. And he's, he was saying, oh, see my innocence, you know, everything is against, you know, you burning me. But yeah, but they did it anyway. Anna, can I ask, do you know why the witchcraft accusations that became burnings, do you know why it started? Was there anything in particular that happened in the late 17th century that caused the witchcraft trials to take place? It's just strange it happens for such a short period. It was mainly in the northwest, actually, where we are located, that part of Iceland. Northwest, it's called Vestfjörður or Vestfjords. And most of the witchcraft cases were there. There was the first witch burning was actually not there, but then there was a strange sickness here a bit north from where we are. And no one could explain this sickness. And uh, it was uh, people felt really bad when they, especially when they went to church. So the only explanation people found it was kind of sorcery. Because when the people went to church, probably the devil was like haunting the people and he was fighting it was the, especially worse when they heard the God's word, you know. And then there were three men burned after that. One was accused, uh, you know, burned for this case, for causing this. He admitted that he had done some kind of sorcery, that he has seen the devil himself as a fox and sent him to someone, but uh, not causing this. But then there were two other men who admitted or they, you know, were using some kind of sorcery and they were all three burned. And I think when something like that happened, for the people at the time, they just saw, okay, this must be real because they burned like three men there. And so the people that are practicing, they believed in it more and the people who were afraid of it also believed it more. So it's kind of like, let the fire, you know. Uh, literally, it lit the fire in yeah. people's mind yeah. and also lit the fire. So it, yeah. what's really interesting, Anna, that, that you've said that it was three men that were accused of witchcraft. Now, we know from the researches that we've done in Europe as a generality, those countries had the vast majority of people that were accused of witchcraft as women. But in Iceland, we understand that's different. Yeah, 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 it's completely different. And it seems like uh, sorcery was something that men practiced more. Yeah, I get this question a lot, and I don't think there's a one simple answer for it. Uh, that we actually have, it was similar in North Norway too. There were also witch burnings, I and mean, there were mainly men, mostly men, who were burned there. And I've heard one um, explanation could be that the society here was different than in Europe or other places. It's because every person, every woman had to be bound to a certain household. You could not be uh, like a woman living alone in a hut, you know, in a house somewhere. You have to be part of a household in a farm. It's just a farmer's society, and you had to have belong to a certain farm or something. So in Europe, maybe they, these women who were accused for witchcraft, many of them might have been just women that were kind of not following the social rules or just living alone and then just a little bit strange. And then people found out, that, oh, they're witches. Or, you know, so they had and no protection if they were if they were like that, they were just on their own without somebody looking after them. They maybe weren't as important in a structure. Whereas what you're saying, if, if women had to belong to a particular farm, presumably that was so they could work on the farm. So they yeah. would be important to the farm. And if they lost them, they lost a worker. So they're yeah, more exactly. valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, of course, and some of the cases, like they were accusing, uh, there was a priest who accused the father and the son for causing sickness in his home. And then after he burned them, he got the land and everything that, that belonged to them, you know? 
So if you do that to a woman, you don't get anything because she didn't own anything. It was the man who owned, you know? Uh-huh. That's also could be, you know? That's, and that's actually, interesting. Yeah, because yeah. we found that with the work that, that we've heard about and the research that we've done, that there were, there were definitely a strong amount of cases in Scotland of women that were accused as witches, and then the person that accused them, surprise, then got their land. Mm, <laughs> so yes, exactly. You, know, you can see that there's, that would be an ulterior motive that somebody would have. But the, so mm-hmm. women in, in Iceland weren't allowed to own land then? No. Ah. Yeah. So yes. the, not, the not owning of land and the belonging to a particular farm and having that particular structure maybe protected them because they were useful economically, as Zoe has said. That's yeah, true. I think so. Yeah, there was one woman who was burned for sorcery and witchcraft here in Iceland, and he she actually moved to the West Fjords, and so she was new there and didn't have you know uh, you know network there, so she was not protected. So and then she you know she was living there with her son, and they were both burned for witchcraft. The men that were burned for witchcraft were they. Did they have power in their communities or were they just quite... They were just uh, regular... No, most of the people that were accused and burned for witchcraft, they were just a common man. It was, uh, you know... And sometimes it was to get land and sometimes it just was, you know, because, yeah, people really believed in sorcery. And then, you know, there was one man, he actually proposed to one helper on the farm and they refused that he wasn't allowed. And then after they were sick, and then they, okay, he caused the sickness because we wouldn't allow him to marry our helper, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's, a, you know, it's the mixture of many things. And in the Vestures, actually, there were unconvenient relations between the people with power. For example, there was one priest here, Reverend. He has been studying in Denmark, no, in Germany, sorry. And there he learned about this demology or like he, the he demons. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, all this, you know, science behind the witchcraft, you know, and the witch hunts, you know, got to know it there. And at the time he was very knowledgeable. Just, for the, benefit, in Iceland. just for the benefit of our listeners, when Anna said the word science there, she put, she put air quotes around it. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, can, you can see Anna on the screen, but obviously you'll not be able to when you listen to the podcast. So when Anna said science, she wasn't meaning actual now science, yeah. in case anybody gets touched. <laughs> so they'd studied the quote unquote science and then that did that make them feel that they had, you know, they, that this was new understanding that actually this was a real thing, like an illness, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And he wrote, he wrote about this and his half brother was actually a sheriff here. So it was easy for him, you know, and sure. his wife was most likely an alcoholic or something because he was very sick and they couldn't realize what the sickness was and why she was always in bed. And then, the, of course, he grabbed his knowledge and said, okay, this is sorcery. And, you know, and because of him, they were like, I think there were seven of these 21 related to this, just this one family there. In Iceland, my extremely small amount of knowledge I have about Iceland is that um, you've got a strong and rich tradition of folklore, don't you, in Iceland? Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. And has that yeah. is that still present in modern day Iceland? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And we are really proud and we want to keep this up. And well, especially where I am and we live here, we, we want to keep this up 
here we have actually an institution here in Holmavik with a folklorist. He's doing research and work with this. And this is actually something that the Museum of Social and Witchcraft uh, established first. But then they stopped running this, and but then the University of Iceland took over this institution and is because the part of the University of Iceland. So we are kind of trying to take the folklore, and we want to have here. So if you want to learn about Icelandic folklore, you come to Strandir, you come to us. Right. And uh, last summer we had actually a visitor from Scotland. We had J.K. Rowling visiting the museum. Oh, ah, wow! Very cool. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know about it until the day after when I saw the news. It was very, <laughs> it was a shock. <laughs> yeah, you could have had her at the museum. That's annoying. But um, <laughs> well, she think- was at the museum. She came. She was around, on a yacht around Iceland, and she came to Holmavik just to come to the museum. You know. Wow, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> great. And do you think that Iceland's interest in folklore is it tied up with the witch trials in Iceland? You know, no, I wouldn't say so. No. no, it's just very old and it's just in our soul, you know. Yeah. And when I've been thinking about it now, it's just kind of many things that are just normal to me that you it's normal for me to think that there are certain parts of nature you don't understand, you don't see, and but you have to respect it, you know. And mm-hmm. we have many places that are okay, this is a sacred place, you're not allowed to do anything there or move the stone, otherwise something bad will happen. It might be because else or there or something. yeah, and we have some stories about that when we've been building roads that uh, there's some they have to move a certain stone or they're about to do it and then all the machines break down and no one can explain what's happening and then they just build the road around the stone, you know. <laughs> so wow, <laughs> belief in elves actually is well, most of the people don't want to deny, you know, they don't want to say okay, I believe in elves, but they don't also don't want to say I don't believe in elves. So they kind of like <laughs> don't want to <laughs> deny their existence, you know, <laughs> because we. Hedging their bets. They, they're, yeah. they're not going to confirm or deny. There might be elves, is what people yeah. are agnostic on elves. Elf agnostic, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and what, do, what do modern day Icelandic people think about the witch trials? They think this is crazy that people believe that you were able to do all these strange things with magic and sorcery. Do you get taught about it in school in Iceland? Not or? so much. No, oh. actually, not so much. But it's so not like find that people don't really know very much about it because that's something that we've found here is that we weren't taught about Scotland's witch like past really, um, and we're learning new things about it all the time. Is it similar in Iceland then? I think this is not so big like in Scotland. It's uh, I don't know. We know there have been some witch burnings. I think it's just like with the darker side of our story, we don't want to focus so much on that. So that's why we don't <laughs> we don't teach it so much, you know. But I find it very important lesson, you know, uh, because this just something that's uh, the people with least power, you know. Yeah, we uh, found that we've spoken to so many people all over the world, Anna. That's the theme that we keep seeing throughout all these different cultures all these different times, it's all about the power structure between those that are in power and those that are vulnerable. And it's always Mm -hmm. the vulnerable people who come off worst, unsurprisingly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. But I think we also have to understand, like, people believe this was real. And and if you believe that someone was able with witchcraft and sorcery to do something, 
it's kind of like you have this invisible enemy. You know, you, everyone looked the same, but someone could be a sorcerer wits, and it's it's uh, you know. It's all about making people other, making people yes. outsider. And once people are made the outsider, then they're very vulnerable to accusations that aren't true. Unfortunately, our societies, all our societies appear to do that. You know, repeatedly over time, they make some people the other people. They're the bad people. They're the people that have caused our problems. Exactly. It's interesting to see how, although we grow up in a lot of different cultures, there's some basic human psychology at work that seems to affect all these cultures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tell us, when did the museum open up? How long has it been going? Uh, it opened up in 2000. So last year we're celebrating our 20th anniversary. And it was established by a group of local people. There was a man who was studying in the university and it did like a report for the area here, how folklore could be uh, used for, uh, to strengthen or, you know, opportunities for the area. And one uh, part of the uh, report was uh, we might open a museum about sorcery and witchcraft. And that idea got a lot of tension. And so they said, okay, this is a good idea. Let's, you know, work that further. So it took so a few years to prepare it, but they opened in 2000. And there was a, a group of locals who had different uh, talents. Uh, one was a historian, one's a folklorist, a uh, carpenter, electrician, you know, so that like with... <laughs> and and it, yeah, and it worked. And uh, the motivation was to build something up that would attract people and a call for attention here. But then, and it seemed like uh, social witchcraft was something that grabbed the attention and was located here because most of the cases were in the West Church. And this area, Stunted, which is the east, uh, that coast here, it has always been kind of had this reputation that people here know more and know kind of sorcery and. There are folklore stories of some sorcerers who lived here, like one who actually was the first of the settlers. He was able to bring out fog when the enemies were coming so he wouldn't find him. Yes, so they decided to have that here. And it has been flourishing and expanding. It, uh, we have an exhibition in Holmavik. It's a main exhibition. We also have a second part of exhibition. It's a bit northern, 30 kilometers north from here. And that's a saucer's cottage. And it's uh, like this old turf, Icelandic turf house. And it shows how the tenants, how the common people lived during this time in the 17th century. Because most of the people that were accused were just poor farmers, some tenants who had very rough life and, you know, used some magical staves and reciting some words just to help them in their yeah, Just to in try and lives. make them feel better or just to try... Yeah make their situation better. So it's very tragic. We have talked in the past, um, Zoe and I, also with other guests, about the fact that it's a terrible thing to have happened, but it is also fascinating. Yes. Mm -hmm. That people want to know about it and are, are intrigued. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like, I think it would uh, be kind of like this dark tourism, you know? You kind of want to learn about the dark things and the hard things also. It's still important to learn about yeah about the history of what's what has happened to people, I suppose, so we never do it again. It's important. Exactly. It's important mm -hmm. to know these things happen. Yeah. But we don't have stories of like, for example, the witches uh, flying on uh, broomsticks or something. No. And we didn't even have broomsticks here in Iceland, so. 
<laughs> so so we the, weren't sweeping the floors. They were just mud floors. It didn't make any sense to sweep them. So, <laughs> in, in, in popular culture, what do witches look like in Iceland? Because in Scotland, it's the black pointy hat, the cat, the broom. It's a woman. She's got a big nose. Big yeah, tape. yeah, of course we have that now, you know, just, you know, as an influence from other cultures right, and from okay. movies and all that. Yeah. So I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say we have any special, but, uh, but the, like the older stories and the folklore stories about this sorcerers, then we, they're all these priests, actually. They're the most powerful sorcerers were priests, Catholic priests, you know. And I think sorcery and religion is kind of, it comes from the same roots, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling this to the kids when they come to me to visit the museum. I was like, yeah, the, the sorcery in Witska has as, as old as religion because it's your, your way to show that you have kind of power from above or, you know, or something else, more power than as an individual to show that you can do something that the other people cannot. Then kind of like Jesus. And then they say like, what are you saying? If Jesus was a sorcerer, it's like, well, I think what, a lot of things that he did was kind of like, yeah. It would be you know, considered as a sorcery, you know? It was healing the, the sick and he was turning water to wine. I don't know, but, you know, yeah. it is this miracles and sorcery. It's, this, you know, the same route. I was going to say, is it one man's miracle is another man's sorcery. Or another One woman's miracle is another woman's sorcery, I suppose. It's just different ways of describing things which make different ideas apply to them. You know, if one's a miracle, it seems yeah. good and positive. If one's sorcery, it's seen evil or bad. But you're talking about the same kind of ideas. So interesting. Mm -hmm. So how many visitors are you getting to the museum? We are open all year round. We also have a restaurant there. So people also come, just, you know, local people just come to have dinner or coffee or, you know. So we have like, in the last years, we have had like 16,000 over a whole year. You know, wow. Well, so, and it's like nine thousand, maybe nine thousand from that were just going to the museum, but you know, extra, you know, the other maybe just visiting the restaurant. But yeah, we are well, getting a lot of lot of visitors. As soon as we can, Anna, we want to come over and visit. Yeah, I I can't wait to be able to get out and visit these different places. But I'd love to go to Iceland. I'd really love to go there. So hopefully, one day soon, we will actually get to travel back out of Scotland again at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we look forward to coming and visiting you if we can yeah. and, uh, and seeing uh, your beautiful part of the world. Yeah, you're welcome. I'll be happy to have you. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming and telling us the, the stories that, that you have told us. It's so interesting to us to hear about the, the same ideas about power structure, about how it worked differently in your community and mm -hmm. how unusually it was men that were involved in the history of witchcraft and the burning. So, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Witches of Scotland podcast. Join us next week for episode 33, which is quite exciting. In the meantime, please do tell people about the different areas where they can interact with us. So we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Although I don't think you've not done any more TikToks, have you? <laughs> I haven't done any TikToks. I'm just a Come on. Them. You should be doing TikToks. <laughs>
<laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, just if you don't get that, that sarcasm that you're hearing there. <laughs> so not not so much TikTok then. But um, we are we are really happy to hear from people. We really enjoy when people get in touch. We've had two different people get in touch this week just to say how much they're particularly enjoying the podcasts that are quite new listeners. One of them said that she is unable to get on with her study that she's supposed to be doing because she's sort of fallen down the rabbit hole of uh, looking into the witch trials in Scotland. So that's that's good. I mean, bad, obviously, for our studies, but good for us. Yeah, as, as we were reflecting on people wanting to learn things, it's probably the best idea if they keep doing their studies and listen to us in their spare time. Yeah, but spare time, you should be relaxing. So it's good to listen to a podcast. So please do tell people. And if you know people that are not on social media, you can just tell them and direct them to how to get it on their podcast. I've shown several people recently who've got iPhones that have never listened to podcasts before how to actually find podcasts on their phones. So maybe you, dear listeners, can be citizen um, podcast educators and show people how to actually access podcasts, not just ours, but all the other marvellous things that are out there to listen to. Absolutely, absolutely. And please do get in contact with us in particular. If Do you think it's a good idea for our national memorial to be a museum of mm. witch trials? Do you think that's a yeah. good idea? It'd be really interesting to see whether or not the listeners thought that that was an interesting aspect. Having And where do people think it should be? Not, I mean, we have to clarify, we've got absolutely no say in this whatsoever, really, I don't think. But I think, you know, Again, it'll be probably a case of people power, I suppose, to an extent. But where do you think that it would be good to have a memorial and or a museum? We're in Scotland. And with that, fair listeners, we shall leave. I'm getting my hair done. What? I'm getting my hair done today. I just <laughs> want to share that with everybody. It's quite exciting. Again, not, not the most useful for podcasting, but next <laughs> you can come back with your new hair and uh, tell us about it. Thank you very much. I will gladly tell you about that. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Speak to you next time. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.